now that this is all done and God has faithfully assigned all the tribes, he's assigned all the cities of refuge, he's assigned all the Levitical cities, he says, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, you can go home now. You can... Now, that, this, you've got to pick up on this. Why doesn't he say that to all the other tribes? You can go home. Because they are already home. And so this is another subtle way of the narrator to say, God is honoring the promise of Moses, but at the same time, the fact that he has to say, in the home of Israel, you can go home, that should be a yellow flag like, yeah, but still, that was not God's ideal. That's not God's ideal. So, the, I mean, like if you're looking at your children in your house and you say, you can go home now, you're like, something's not right here. And so they've been faithful to their promise of crossing over and helping the tribes conquer. And Joshua's being faithful to his promise to let them go back home. But the fact that he has to say that is just another subtle reminder. This was not God's ideal. This was not God's ideal for their unity. Everything is done. Conquest is complete in the first stage that God commanded. The land is allotted. The cities of refuge allotted. They've all gone back and they're starting to settle down. The next stage is that the next generation is supposed to start conquering. See, what God wanted is he wanted them all to work together to conquer all the major cities in all the land of Israel. Now that the land has been divvied up and the major cities are conquered and they're back, they're now in their tribal territory. Now you realize this has got to be huge. This is like if you remember the day that you were finally able to afford your first house ever. Like you bought your first house. Like I remember like I got three little girls and we're in this condo and it was great. I mean, our condo was great, but we had no backyard for them to play in. We had no driveway or sidewalk for them to ride bikes on. And, and I know that like this is, a, this is how I work. I always felt so guilty wanting that because most of the world doesn't have that. But at the same time, I really wanted it because I have daughters and I want them to ride their bikes and I want them to. So I always feel torn like I shouldn't be desiring that because most of the world doesn't. But at the same time, I kind of want a backyard and a sidewalk. And so the first time we actually had that was like, I mean, even now, Andrew will tell you, like at night when I'm brushing my teeth, I just look out the window and I just feel like so blessed that I have a backyard and a sidewalk and that kind of stuff for my girls. And so it's that day that you finally have your home. Whatever you think that home should be. Not in a, I want more materialism kind of a way, but just, this is my home where my family is, and this is mine. And I feel safe, and I feel at home. And that real true sense of home. Not a physical building, but home. This is the first time they've ever experienced that. They now, for the first time ever... Remember, Abram didn't have a home. He was a nomadic man who wandered around. His son was nomadic. His son was nomadic. His sons were nomadic. Then they went off to Egypt, and they were given the land of Goshen, but they were enslaved. Now they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. From basically 2100 B.C. all the way up to 1406, they have never, ever, ever had a home. And now, for the first time ever, they have a nation. And they have their own land. And they have massive acres of land. 
this would have to be the greatest day of their life. I mean, they now have their own farmland, their own, th- and, and it's all because of the faithfulness of God. And I can't imagine this sense of joy and rest and relief and celebrations and festivals that are going on here. And so they settle down. The next phase now is there's still some cities within their tribal territory that have not been completely conquered, the minor cities, like the Zanesvilles and the Xenias. And, the, and so they haven't been conquered yet. And so now the reality is each tribe is now responsible to finish the conquest within their own land. So all the tribes work together for the major cities like Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati. But now the tribes are responsible for the rest of the, the, the conquest of their own. And then they can partner with a neighboring tribe if they want, but it's, it's not going to be this national thing now. So they all go back and they settle down. But here's what's interesting. In case you've missed all the little clues that the narrator is saying, it's not good that these two and a half tribes are living over here. What immediately follows after they go home is a serious miscommunication. And so now everybody's settled down. They're living on their own. And then the tribes on the western side of the Jordan River hear about something. Chapter, 10, chapter 22, verse 10. The Reubenites, Gadites, and half-tribe of Manasseh came to Gileath near Jordan in the land of Canaan and built there near the Jordan an impressive altar. The Israelites received this report. Look, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the entrance of the land of Canaan at Gileath near Jordan in the Israelite side. And when the Israelites heard this, the entire Israelite community assembled at Shiloh to launch an attack against them. You're like, whoa, what's going on? They built an altar and we're going to civil war? God made it very clear there's only to be one altar and one altar only in Israel, and that's in the tabernacle. Because here's what, for, for many reasons, but two big ones is that he wants everybody to go to the same place for worship and sacrifice, because if they don't go to the same place, then their unity is broken down. So if they're all going to different places, there's no unity. But when you're all gathering together in the same place of worship, that's unity. The other reason is because the worship has to be controlled by the Levites. Now, I know that sounds really bad, but if you read the rest of the Bible, when they're left on their own, they immediately start worshiping idols. And you know that if you're not involved in a community of faith, after a while, you start kind of falling away and going other places. And though we may not be worshiping like stone idols, we all have idols in our life. And I think we all know that. So the reality is, if they're going wherever they want to worship, remember this whole land was filled with other gods. And the gods are still there. They had to, they, not only did they have to conquer everybody, they had to go to these high places and actually tear down the idols. And that's faith, too. To walk, I mean, you, can you imagine walking up this hill, and you're on top of this hill with this beautiful scene around you, and you see this amazing, artistic, gold image on an altar that's already built. And how attractive and tempting that would be to not destroy it, because it's a beautiful work of art. There's lots of money in it. 
and really, gosh, do I really want to go like 70 miles every week to sacrifice in tabernacle when this beautiful thing is right here in my backyard? And at the same time, like, oh, God forbids us to have any kind of art that represents creation or him. And yeah, this is beautiful. How could I destroy this like Monet? And how tempting that would be to just keep it there. And so that's got to be a lot of faith to go up to these amazing things and just destroy them and obedience to God. And so what God says is you've got to destroy those things and you've got to go one place and one place only to worship because if you don't, your unity breaks down, you become isolated, and your heart goes astray to other gods. Now, they're probably thinking, not only do we have to walk really far to Shiloh, the tabernacle, but we have to go down this giant cliff, plateau, and we have to go across the Jordan River, which we know was difficult to cross. It required God to part it. And then we have to go up these hills again to get to the tabernacle. That's just so much work. Let's build our own altar. It's, not, it's been like months, and they're already doing something they shouldn't do. They're strictly forbidden to do this, and they've done it. They've done it. And this is an area way of saying, see, they should have never lived over there. Were there Levite cities? On the yes. Okay. But remember, they're scattered. Right. So there's about, there's about two, three. Well, there's three, two, two. So not that much. So they build this. So the whole community says the penalty for sacrificing outside of the tabernacle is death. So they say they've built an altar outside the tabernacle. We're going to be obedient to God and we're going to go kill them. You're like, okay. But the God also commanded trials and witnesses and evidence. So both sides right now are wrong. Because one side has done something they shouldn't. And the other side is skipping the whole witnesses and evidence and trials. The Israelites... Verse 13, sent Phineas, son of Elias, our priest of the land of Gilead, to the Reubenites, Gadites, and half-tribe Manasseh. Now you see, okay, now they're going to do the investigation. So they send Phineas. Now Phineas is in the, the, the son of Eleazar, who was the son of Aaron. And Phineas is a really godly man. Because back in um, Numbers, a whole bunch of Simeonites brought a whole bunch of temple prostitutes from Moab into the tabernacle and began to have sex to the god Baal in the tabernacle of God. Phineas, commanded by God to kill anything that defiled the tabernacle, took a spear and a javelin, and he killed them both, ran them both through, and nailed them to the ground in the act of the sex act. And God's, and you're like, basically, you're like, Whoa! And your first reaction as a modern-day American is like, that's really graphic, sick and twisted. But then God says, he's righteous. Because he hated that sin so much that he was willing to obey me and kill. Because remember, you have to understand, like, you're like, okay, but it's a tent. Remember, this tent is heaven, so to speak. This is the throne of God. So this would be the equivalent of somebody taking a prostitute of a pagan religion up into heaven, going right before the throne of God and having sex with a woman to worship Baal. That's what they were doing. And Phineas went and killed them, according to the law. And so Phineas is blessed to be priest forever, his descendants. So Phineas is already set up as a godly man, which means the minute you see his name going over there to investigate, you're like, okay, this guy's a good guy. 
This guy's a good guy. So he was accompanied by 10 leaders, one from each tribe, each of the tribes of Israel, which is important because God required that every court case have 10 elders as the jury, so to speak. And they went to the land of Gilead to the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, the entire community of Yahweh says, why have you disobeyed God of Israel by turning back today from following Yahweh, who in you built an altar for yourselves and have rebelled today against Yahweh? The sin we committed at Poor, and that's the sin he's talking about. Remember back in Poor when we were sleep- they were sleeping with Moabite prostitutes? We don't want that to happen again. We don't want that to happen again. Was bad enough. To this very day, we have not purified ourselves. It even brought a plague on the community of Yahweh. Now today you dare to turn back from following Yahweh, and you're rebelling today against Yahweh tomorrow. He may break out in anger against the entire community of Israel. But if your own land is impure, cross over to Yahweh's own land. Notice that they call it your land, and that the other side of the Jordan is Yahweh's land. Because Yahweh himself lives and settle down among us, but don't rebel against Yahweh or us by building for yourself an altar aside from the altar of Yahweh our God. When Achan's son of Zerah disobeyed the command about the city's riches, the entire Israelite community was judged. So they're also fearing judgment of God on everybody. Though only one man had sinned, he most certainly died for his sin. The Reubenites, Gadites, and half-tribe of Manasseh answered the leaders of Israel clans, El, God, the Yahweh, or Yahweh, El God Yahweh. He knows the truth. So they're crying out to God. Like, God Yahweh, God Yahweh, God Yahweh. He knows why we're doing this. He knows the truth. Israel must also know, if we rebelled or or disobeyed Yahweh, don't spare us today. If we have built an altar for ourselves to turn back from following Yahweh by making burnt sacrifices and grain offerings on it, or by offering tokens of peace on it, Yahweh himself will punish us. We swear that we have done this because we are worried that in the future our descendants would say to our descendants, What relationship do you have with Yahweh, God of Israel? Yahweh made the Jordan a boundary between you, us and Reuben. Notice that they've even admitted that the Jordan is a boundary, and they've crossed it, and they're living on the other side. You have no right to worship Yahweh, and this way your descendants might cause our descendants to stop obeying Yahweh. So we decided to build this altar not for, for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a reminder to us and you, to our descendants who follow us, that we will honor Yahweh His very presence with burnt offerings and sacrifices took us a peace. So basically they say this, we know we're not living within the boundaries of God's promised land. And we know we're not to with you anymore. So we built an altar really close to the border, so that everybody on our side can see the altar and it looks exactly like the altar in the tabernacle and it'll remind them that they should be worshiping God in the tabernacle. And then we build it so you could see it so that you'll be reminded that we also belong to you because we're afraid that future generations are going to turn your people against us because there's a river dividing us. So we're building as a reminder to everybody on both sides that we're still the same nation and worship the same God. Now here's what's interesting. This is all loaded with language of, we know we're not where we're supposed to be. So we're doing everything we power we can to remind everybody that we're a part of you. But at the same time, we're going to do this 
by disobeying the law and building an altar we're not supposed to be building to remind everybody that we worship Yahweh and we're part of the people of Yahweh. They're taking, they're figuring it out on their own. They're like, what can, okay, we're, we're afraid of something that's going to happen in the future. What can we do? What are they not doing? They're not going to God. They're not trusting God that if, if they're obedient and we're obedient, then our unity won't be broken. Or maybe we should just go back to the land. Now, what's interesting is when the other Israelites figured this out, they basically say, oh, okay, we, we, we can be okay with that. But on one rule, don't you ever, ever, ever make sacrifices on this. But other than that, we'll, we'll let it stand. And civil war is averted. Now, here's the, 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 the confusing part of it. In one sense, you're like, wow, they were showing a lot of wisdom because they're obeying the law by getting 10 elders. They're investigating, getting witness. They didn't just brashly go to civil war like they were about emotionally to do. But at the same time, nobody consulted God. Nobody consulted God. I hope you're seeing this because over and over and over again, Moses always went to God. But there was one place they didn't go to God, and it was on this issue. And now we're seeing Joshua, who's incredibly faithful, but he has failed to go to God on some issues. And it's now led to the Gibeonites living inside the land. It allowed the unity of Israel to be broken down when they were conquering Ai. And now it's allowing for this altar to exist. And they're violating the lay of law. Now, none of these sins are huge in the way that we would think of like drugs, sex, and alcohol, murder, and that kind of stuff. Feel innocent. They're very gray, although they're not because the law specifically said don't build altars, don't live outside the Jordan. But in a practical, everyday, normal sense, oh, that can be very reasonable. Like, oh, okay. This is a memorial to remind us that we're all the same. I can see that. They're not going to sacrifice on that. But these little compromises and these little not going to God is going to set us up for big failures in the book of Judges. And so what you see is you see an incredibly faithful generation being obedient to God. But there's these little things that they're compromising on. And there's these little things that they're not going to God on. And they feel little right now. And you can easily miss them as you just read through Joshua. But when we get to Judges, these things are going to explode. And it's important for you to see this because when we get to Judges, they will not go to God. Over and over and over again, they have seen the failure of their parents going, not going to God. And they're going to begin to mimic their parents and never go to God. And they're going to see the failure of their parents making little compromises here and there. And they're going to do that even more. And we know that whatever you do gets amplified by the people following you. Whether you're children, whether they're people in your, your group, your leadership, whatever. And whatever you do gets amplified by the followers. And so this is going to lead to major explosions in the book of Judges of disobedience. So the civil wars are averted. And like I said, you're in this tension. You're like, wow, this is good. They're not going to civil war. They investigate. But at the same time, things are not right. 